0: All my brothers and sisters in Christ, once again, praise the name of our risen Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. I'd like to welcome you this morning. Uh, This morning is something of an interesting morning for a number of reasons. Uh, Number one, it would be right and proper for me to speak to you this morning on Memorial Day to remember those who have given their life in order that we might have this freedom here in front of us. It's a very important social holiday, and it would be right to speak on that. We will not be speaking on that, however. It would also be right for us and for for us to speak uh, not on one of our social holidays, but on a theological uh, uh, day of recognition, and that is the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ, and this is a vitally important uh, uh, day in the history of the Christian church. Uh, That day in which our Lord Jesus Christ ascended to heaven to to sit at His Father's right hand. Very, very important. Everything by way of your continuing blessing uh, through the work of Jesus Christ is because He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He has been given victory over all of His enemies. But this morning we'll take a look at neither one of those things. We will instead come back to that passage of Scripture we've been considering for some time now. That passage of scripture in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. We'll be looking in this passage of scripture in order to see and to hear the word of exhortation that our Lord Jesus Christ gives to that church at Pergamos. You might remember those of you who have been with us these last few weeks. We've spent quite a bit of time considering this letter that our Lord Jesus Christ gives to this church. This letter, again, is uh, similar to many of the other letters that he writes. Uh, There are things uh, in common that these letters have. But this one letter I want to take a look at by way of the 17th verse and the exhortation that our Lord Jesus Christ gives for you and me to hear what the Spirit of God is saying to the church. And so what I want to do is I want to open that passage of Scripture up to you here today. So again, let's take our Bibles. Let's go to Revelation chapter uh, 2. And we'll read together uh, verses 12 through 17. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Again, please hear the word of God. And to the angel of the church of Pergamos write, These things saith he which hath the sharp sword with two edges. I know thy works, and where thou dwellest, even where Satan's seed is. And thou holdest fast my name, and hast not denied my faith. Even in those days where in Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was slain among you where Satan dwelleth. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed on the idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. Repent! Or else I will come unto thee quickly, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh I will give to eat of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, and in that stone a new name written, which no man knoweth, saving he that receiveth it. Well, today we're going to take a look at that 17th verse. That (coughs) verse where our Lord Jesus Christ gives an exhortation, Our Lord Jesus Christ gives a call to repent and to hear. And our Lord Jesus Christ gives a great promise. We're going to take a look at each of these here today. And what I want you to see primarily by way of our controlling thing is that our Lord Jesus Christ to this church, the church of Pergamos, and to every church in the book of Revelation, and I would say to every church that has ever been in existence, our Lord Jesus Christ calls upon his church to hear the word that he has given to the church. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And so what I want to press upon you here this morning is the duty and the necessity, the awful responsibility that you and I have to hear the word of Jesus Christ spoken in this day to each and every one of us. What we're going to do is we work through this passage of scripture. We're going to take a look at the very very call that he gives to hear the word. We're going to see again what he calls us to do specifically. He calls us to be overcomers. And that, in one sense, is going to be the central point of our preaching here this morning. The fact that Jesus Christ calls you and I to be overcomers in this world. And we'll see how the scripture sets that before us and how you and I, not only are we overcomers, but you and I are enabled to overcome. And we'll take a look at that. And then the third thing we'll do is we're going to take a look at the great promises that Christ gives. These promises, again, that you and I might partake of the hidden manna. This, uh, this promise that he gives. And then the, the, the complimentary promise where he says, I will give to them a white stone and a new name written on it. We'll take a look at each of these things. So oftentimes, again, as we've seen here in this uh, study of the book of Revelation, chapters 2 through 3, we've seen that our Lord Jesus Christ is always calling his church to hear the word that's being preached. That message cannot be emphasized enough. Over and over again in Scripture, we see this great call to hear and to heed the word of God. And what I would say to you is this. If we were to summarize this sermon here this morning, it would be essentially this. Christ calls you and me to hear his word and to overcome the world. As simple as that. To hear the word and to overcome the world. And here this morning we're going to take a look at both of these things and we're going to see how the scripture instructs us in this matter. Now you might be surprised that we've taken such a long time to get through this uh, epistle that Christ has written to the church at Pergamos. Uh, the other churches that we've considered, we've tried to handle them in, in uh, no more than one uh, sermon. We've tried to work through this section uh, fairly quickly. But when we came to this church at Pergamos, one of the things that I noticed is that the things for which this church were commended for were exemplary. Do you remember what they were? Our Lord Jesus Christ said to that church in Pergamos that even in a time of great persecution and opposition, that church held fast to the name of Jesus Christ. That church did not deny his faith. And that was very, very commendable. And that's a pattern for believers everywhere. That in in whatever day we find ourselves, whatever kind of a culture we are in, whatever kind of opposition we may face, Christ expects those who are his to hold fast to his name. Many challenges, many threats, many difficulties in holding fast the name of Christ. But Christ expects that of us and Christ commends that of this church here in Pergamos. The other thing that we saw, not only did this church not deny the name of Jesus Christ, this church held fast to the faith of Christ. That faith of which, Christ, by, which by which Christ is identified. That teaching that He has given to us in his word. That holy doctrine that he has given that calls us to a life of godliness and holiness. And he said to that church there in Pergamos that lived in the midst of a pagan culture, uh, in, in the midst of a culture that was so saturated with sin... Said, you've not denied my name, nor have you denied my faith. And he, in the church, again, as I said, Christ commended this church for that. And Christ commends every church that stays faithful to his name and faithful to his cause in whatever age they live. And I would encourage and exhort us as this little congregation to stay faithful to Christ in our day. And So again, Christ commending them for that. And you remember the difficulty they faced in this, do you not? Jesus says, again, you've not denied my name. You've not denied my, you've held, I'm sorry, you've held to, fast to my name. You've not denied my faith. And he mentions again his faithful martyr, my martyr Antipas. And what the, the reason why our Lord Jesus Christ mentions Antipas is because Antipas was that individual who, even at the cost of his life, stayed faithful to Jesus Christ. The society was against him, the culture was against him. Everything by way of political and social pressure was upon this man, and he would not deny Christ. And he paid for it dearly. But the thing that I want you to see is this. Jesus says, my faithful martyr, Antipas. Christ identifies with his people in their trials. Christ identifies with those who identify with him. And I want you to see and understand that in all these things, Christ personally identified with those in the church that were being faithful to his name. The church had many commendable things about it. And this in one sense required, at least from my perspective, an entire sermon to work through. The next thing that we saw about this church here in Pergamus, and this was somewhat surprising, this church, that it was commendable in so many ways, had a, a, an underlying and something of a, of a hidden defect that was truly corroding and rotting its faith in Christ. It was a defect that, again, may not have been seen on the surface, but our Lord Jesus Christ saw it. The Lord Jesus Christ saw it and he exposed it for what it was. And it's kind of interesting the way it's presented to us in the passage of Scripture. Christ had previously mentioned those who had held fast to his name and, and those who did not deny his faith. Well, there was at this church of Pergamus those who were, the same word, holding to these strange and, and these corrupt doctrines. These doctrines that were, de, that were designated as the, the doctrine of Balaam and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. <coughs> And so again, there was this church that looked so good on one hand, but had this underlying corruption in it that would have been fatal to the church if not repented of. And you remember we spent some time trying to understand what was this doctrine of Balaam and what was this doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And you remember essentially we said this, that these two doctrines along with the complementary doctrine mentioned in chapter 2 verse 20, that teaching of Jezebel, was a form of compromise with the world that said essentially to the professing church that you did not need to take a stand against the, against the idolatry or the immorality of the prevailing culture. It was that kind of mindset that, that kind of expresses itself. And, you know, you don't, take, you don't need to take these hard and fast stands. And if the society is going in this direction, again, to stand against that in a way that would cause harm would not be necessary. And that's why our Lord Jesus Christ says, these things must be repented of. Do you remember what he said there in verse 16, I believe it is? He says, thou hast them there that hold the doctrine of the the Nicolaitans. And he, he goes on to say, unless they repent, I will come and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. The Lord Jesus Christ coming to fight against his church. And this is how serious he takes these sins. And again, these sins, again, there's many ways in which we can uh, kind of describe these these, these strange doctrines that were being held. In our day, it may not be hard to, to see or to understand this. We have voices in the church today that would call us to leave off some of the stricter elements of holiness. Some of those distinguishing features of what it is to be a Christian in a fallen world. But we do that at our own peril. And in one sense, we cannot do that. Christ always calls His church to holiness. And He says to those who would would entertain teachings, and this was the thing, these were not individuals who were flirting with worldliness, we might say. There were individuals in the church who were holding, and that same word again, for uh, those who held fast the name of Christ, there were individuals who were holding this doctrine. In other words, they were incorporating into the very teaching fabric of what they were saying. And our Lord Jesus Christ said, these things must be repented of. What we're going to see here again, as we saw last week, we're going to see here again that this challenge is still to the church today. While we are not called to kind of give in to overt idolatry and paganism, much of what goes on in our society today is idolatrous. It does involve practices that are offensive to God. And sadly, there are voices in the professing church of Jesus Christ that would encourage us to go along with this or at least drop our guard on these things. This is the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. This is the doctrine of Balaam, you see. This is the teaching of Jezebel. And these things need to be fought against. These things need to be, again, in the face of these things, there needs to be a call for repentance. And that's what our Lord Jesus Christ is going to do. Very interesting that many of the many of the strident calls to, to personal holiness given in the scripture, as we read them in our day, we normally read them kind of against the backdrop of what we might call an overly secular society that's just giving itself to, to freedom of expression. But one of the things that I've kind of been noticing here as we work through Revelation chapter 2 and 3 is that many of the prohibitions and many of those strident calls to holiness are given against the backdrop, not so much of a secularized society, but rather of a paganized society. And by pagan, what I mean is that that form of worship, that idolatrous worship that had immorality connected to it. These two things went hand in hand. The idolatrous society was an immoral society. The immoral society was an idolat- uh, idolatrous society. And stop and think of, of the things that we see here. Again, some of these calls to holiness. Listen to what Peter writes. And I mentioned this passage of scripture last week, but we'll take a look at it here again. Listen to what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. I remember reading this passage of scripture Relatively early in my Christian life, and I was thinking, boy, this is a passage of Scripture that's calling me to leave off my, my old days of, of, of being unconverted. And, that, and truly it does that. But I'm, I'm convinced that Peter is writing this not in the context of a secularized society, but in the context of a pagan society. Listen to what he says. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse three, verses 3 and 4. For in times past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lasciviousness, lust, excesses of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it's strange that you run not with them to the same excessive riot, speaking evil of you. Now we think of that just like living like the world. In one sense it is. And that's, that would be a very uh, appropriate uh, current application of that. But in this day, those things that are mentioned there were the, were the hallmark of idolatry and pagan feasts. And so that in the pagan feast, the pagan feast that you were expected to participate in, the pagan feast that in many ways you would have been coming out of that background, the pagan feast that in many ways would have represented the very, uh, the very uh, work that you did, the very, what we would call a, a, a trade in our day, or, the, or a workers' guild, that idea that you would be identified publicly, these things were involved in that type of public expression. And the call to holiness then is a call not only to personal holiness of life, but also a call of personal holiness against the culture where, if you don't participate in these things, things can be very, very difficult for you. That's why in the church at Smyrna they were impoverished. You remember again when our Lord Jesus Christ says to that church that's undergoing persecution, "I know your poverty." Why were they impoverished? Because their stand for Christ had like economic and social implications. And Christ said again, stand against that. Stay faithful to my name. Don't deny my faith. And there were those who did. Listen to this passage of Scripture that we're all very familiar with in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9-11. through And again, oftentimes we, we think of this in a secular context. But there in Corinth, one of the great struggles this was the struggle with the, the pagan and the idolatrous culture that the, that the Christians were coming out of. And the emphasis that Paul gives here now is not just immorality in general, but it's immorality connected with idolatry. And oh, by the way, it's an an idolatry that you just kind of didn't have the the, the opportunity, the freedom to, to, to engage in or not to engage in. It was part and parcel of the structure of society, that religious expression. And that's why Paul goes on to say this, "'Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God?' Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you are washed, you are sanctified, and you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. The point I want you to see is this. That was not written in a merely secular context. That was written in a pagan and idolatrous context where you were expected to join in the pagan festivities, quote-unquote. And, and that was part of the social fabric. Your standing in society in a very real way was marked by your participation in these social events. And so there you were taking a stand against and saying, well, I'm not going there. I'm not doing that. And maybe your co-worker was saying to you, well, don't you realize if you don't, if you don't, if you don't participate in this feast, that that's going to have implications uh, for your ability to work. And you're saying, look, I'm done with that. That was what I did in my old days, but no longer. I've identified with Christ. And, this is, and part of this is going to be why it's significant that our Lord Jesus Christ will, if I can say it this way, will incentivize obedience by way of these precious promises. To him that overcomes, I will give thee to the hidden manna." One of the things we understand about the manna in the Old Testament was what? It was provision of God for his people. And you might say that if I follow Christ faithfully, I'll lose, out, I'll lose out economically in this world. Christ says, I have hidden manna for you. You might say that if I, if I don't participate in the things of this world, I'll be an, I'll be an outcast and, and I'll be ostracized. I won't be able to have access to the things of society. Christ says, I will give you a white stone. That white stone will take a look at something of significance, something of a past in society, having that white stone. And Christ has his own white stone that he gives to his people. And So this great, this great struggle, this great conflict, this great, this great difficulty, And the reason why our Lord Jesus Christ was calling for repentance is because there were those in the church who were engaging the larger culture, bringing in elements of of Christian truth, and saying things like our Christian liberty allows us this kind of participation. That our Christian liberty allows us to identify with, with the larger culture. And this is why Paul writes in Galatians chapter five, verse thirteen: "Brother, you have been called to liberty; only, only use not your liberty as an occasion to the flesh." Amen. And so again, the idea that we be, that's being forced upon us in this passage of scripture is that there is again a great challenge in every age and in every day for the Christian to stand with Christ against the culture, for the Christian to stand with Christ against false teaching. And that's why our Lord Jesus Christ, when he says, when he speaks out as, as to that which is commendable, he says, listen, you've held fast in my name. I know the challenges. I know where you dwell. You dwell where Satan's throne is. I know it's the very seat of emperor worship. And unless you show your outward allegiance to the emperor, things will be very difficult to you, for, for you. Oh, but there was my faithful martyr, uh, Martyr Antipas. He was my faithful martyr. Can I, use a, can I use an expression? He was my man in that day. Others were fleeing left and right, but not Antipas. And so you see, Christ has his his name. Christ has his faith. And Christ has his people. And his people, again, are presented with each of these things. Well, again, all of this just by way of review. And it brings us back to our primary point that I want to make here. And our primary point, what is it? That Christ calls his people to hear his word and to overcome the world. And he gives great blessing and promises to those that do. And so I want you to consider that with me. And that's kind of the the outline we're going to follow here today. We're going to follow the the first point of uh, uh, Christ calling us to hear His Word. Uh, Next, we're going to take a look at uh, uh, Christ calling us to overcome. And then thirdly, we're going to take a look at the blessings that our Lord Jesus Christ promises. Well, the first thing I want you to be aware of is then is that Christ calls us to hear His Word. Did you hear, will you read those verses again, that verse there in Verse 17. Him that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Every one of the epistles has this exhortation connected to it. Every one of the letters to the church, to the churches in Revelation, have this exhortation. He that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why is this and what is significant about it? Well, I think the first thing that we should see by way of significance is essentially this: God always Desires. God always calls, Christ always calls individuals to hear his word. In one sense, it's not just enough to speak it. It must be pressed. It must be uh, uh, exhorted to. It must be, I don't want to say forced upon it. In one sense, that might not be an inappropriate word. You must hear and you must heed the word of God. Why do we make this point? Why do we bring this out? Because don't you understand that your hearing and heeding the word of God is a mark that you are one of Christ's sheep? John chapter 10, verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You see, again, you're, you're heeding the call of Christ, even in the face of an opposing culture. You're heeding the call of Christ. is revealing, again, your nature as a, as a sheep is as, as one of his. Our Lord Jesus Christ, again, uh, speaks about the fact that, uh, uh, that every one of his people, every one of his people, and not only are they his sheep, but every one of his people are overcomers. And this brings together the two ideas of hearing and heeding, and then overcoming. Do you know that by virtue of your faith in Jesus Christ, you are an overcomer? But do you also know by virtue of this letter that Christ writes to the church, you are called to overcome? That there is a sense in which your very nature will be expressed and how you live faithfully to Christ in your day. Every one of Christ's people are overcomers, you remember. 1 John chapter 5, verse 5. Who is that that overcomes the world that he, but he that believeth that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? Let me say something. Do you know when you came to faith in Jesus Christ? Am I assuming too much here this morning when I said that? When you came to faith in Jesus Christ? Have you come to faith in Jesus Christ? Is Jesus Christ your savior? Do you know what it is to repent of sin and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ even against all the pressures of this world? And I want you to know and understand something that when you did that, if you do that now, I want you to realize that you are winning a victory against the world, the flesh, and the devil, the very enemies that the word of God delineates for us, the world, that whole system that will crown self, it's very interesting. We don't live in a day so much now where it's looking, where the world is calling for us to, to worship Caesar, but it is allowing you to worship self, put self above all things, and that's part of the difficulty that we face today by way of those who are in, in our present situation embrace the doctrines of Balaam and the doctrines of the Nicolaitans. They're not calling you to, 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 uh, uh, to compromise and worship Caesar, but what they are saying to you is this. Worship self. Find self-fulfillment. Find your most authentic self, sometimes in the most degrading forms. And there are those in the church who allow for that. Christ says, no, none of this. That goes against the very gospel by which you are called. And that's why I'm saying to you, do you realize and understand, when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you want a victory. There was a great victory won that day. You took a stand against the world. You said to the world, no, I'll take Christ. You took a stand against the flesh. Oh, the flesh that cries out for fulfillment. You said, no, I will crucify the flesh. I will mortify the flesh by the grace of God. You took a stand against the devil. Amen. You said to the devil, you go somewhere else. I'm, fi- I'm living in this world for Jesus Christ. Amen. Oh, you see, the, the victory that you won and you came to faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why the scripture can call you an overcomer. Mm-hmm. But there's still a need to persevere in that overcoming. We'll, we'll develop this. So if every one of, if every one of uh, Christ's sheep hear his voice and everyone who is saved overcomes the world, why is this verse being pressed on us today? Why am I taking all this time? Why am I spending three weeks on this, on this epistle to, to the church of Pergamos to, to emphasize this point that he that overcomes, he that hears the word, and he that why am I doing this? Well, because you see the way that Scripture presents these things to us and the way that Christ forces these words upon us causes us to have to examine ourselves, does it not? Isn't that exactly what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5? But let a man examine himself to see whether or not he's in the faith. In that, again, in those epistles to the Corinthians where there is so much a temptation to, to just join in with the world, Paul says examine himself, let a man examine himself. But there's another reason why these words must be pressed in the way they're being pressed. is because Christ always, always presses upon his hearers the necessity to not only hear, but to heed. Always he does this. A matter of fact, it's amazing how many times we see this. Uh, that, that, that expression, heed that hath ears to hear, it's used three times in the Gospel of Matthew. Often in the context of teaching and parable. And our Lord Jesus Christ is saying again to those who are listening, are you just listening uh, with your ears externally or are my words sinking down into your heart? Oh, he that has ears, let him hear. You go to that, that, great, that great passage of scripture by our Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount. And he comes down to the end of that sermon. and What does he do? He presses upon his hearers the need to make sure that they are hearing, heeding, and obeying, just like he does in each one of these letters to the, to, to the churches. Go down there to uh, to Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 and following. Notice what Jesus says in in Matthew chapter 7, verse 24. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine. Sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Whosoever hears these sayings of mine, do you have ears to hear? Jesus goes on to say this. Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him to to a wise man which built his house upon a rock. In other words, you come to the end of the sermon, and what do you see? You see our Lord Jesus Christ pressing his words upon his hearers in a number of ways. Number one, at the end of that sermon, of the Sermon on the Mount, he reminds them that there is a wide gate and a narrow gate, and that you and I must enter in, by the way, of the narrow gate. The Nicolaitans and, and the Balaamites and the, those who follow the, uh, the teaching of Jezebel, they'll tell you there's a wide gate. But Christ says there's a, there's a narrow gate. He warned us against false prophets at the end of that sermon as well. False, false prophets who come uh, again is uh, outwardly as, as, as sheep, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. You see, they come into the church. There's a, there are corrupt trees that give uh, uh, corrupt fruit. There are false professors. There are fools who will not hear or heed his words. In other words, Christ always calls his people to manifest those qualities that define his people, by grace. By virtue of what Christ has done. This is what you are. You're an overcomer. Now Christ calls you to manifest that in living. And that brings us again to to the very very subject of the sermon. Oh, how we must hear the word. And what does our Lord say again? He says, uh, he that hath an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. What does the Spirit say to the church? Does the Spirit say to the church something that you or I might think of subjectively in our hearts somewhere? Maybe I had a dream last night and I got up on a Sunday morning and I told you about my dream. That's not what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Maybe it's something that uh, I just maybe made up and thought about on my own and, and thought by way of my own sanctified imagination. This is what the Spirit is saying. To, that's not what the Spirit is saying to the churches. In every one of these letters, when the, when, when the call to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church, it is, it is pointing back to what Christ has spoken in his word. What does the Spirit say to the church? He says what is in his word. And let me kind of illustrate this for you. So here again, I believe it's in verse 15 of the 7th chapter, our Lord Jesus Christ again says that the, the, those who hold to these, uh, these, these corrupting doctrines, they must repent or else I will come and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Well, What does that mean? Well, the sword of his mouth is this word of God applied in either judgment or blessing. You go there to the end of the, the book of Revelation. In Revelation uh, 22. He that adds to the words of the mouth. I shall add the judgments of this book. Fighting with the sword of his mouth. He that removes uh, uh, from this book. Uh, his name will be removed. Again fighting with the sword of his mouth. And so Christ fights with the sword of his mouth. By bringing to bear all that with the sword. Which the scriptures declare against sin. And so here is this call. And here is this exhortation again to to hear and to heed the word of God. My friends, my brothers and sisters, will you, will I, will we hear and will we heed the word of God this morning? Will we hear what the Spirit is saying to the church and will we heed it? Will we give our lives to it and over uh, for it? And so this is the first thing that our Lord Jesus Christ is saying, hear the word, hear and heed the word. It's not unique to the church at Pergamum. Every one of the churches in Revelation have this exhortation. Look at the teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he preaches, he gives this exhortation to make sure that we hear and that we heed the word of God. Brothers and sisters, what voices are we listening to in our day? Are we listening to the voice of Christ revealed in scripture? or Are we listening to those who come in the name of of, of religion and come in the name, I hate to say it this way because it's it's painting with such a broad brush, but come in the name of a feel-good religion? And let you enthrone self, and keep Christ just maybe as a <clears throat> as a as a, as a, as a good luck charm when you when you happen to think that you need him. Well, you see, in this day, in our day, in our culture, as I said before, the the the, the, the those who hold to the doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitans, they're not telling us to 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 go along with Caesar worship in order to get along in society, but they will tell you to go along with the moral norms of society in order to get along with society. Society will say to you, if you take a stand here, it could be very costly to you. And there are those, again, in the church who will say, well, that's it, it, fine, you can do that. We need to be cautious about that, you see. This call to follow Christ is clear. Again, it's in the context of those who, of one who specifically gave his life. It's very interesting, this man, Antipas, we, Antipas, we don't know much about him. As I said before, I, I said it a couple weeks ago, I, I, almost, I almost hesitate to mention the way in which he was martyred. Very, very gruesome, very, very brutal way in which he was martyred. And it's interesting though, his name Antipas. One of the things that the commentators talk about is that, is this a, was this a real name or was this a name given to him? And the reason why they say that is because the, the name Antipas literally means to stand against all. And was that something of the character of Antipas? Was he a man that, in the face of all kind of opposition, the following Christ was willing to stand against all? Some of you know from church history that uh, that, that 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 great man in the early uh, history of the church, uh, uh, Athanasius, uh, uh, who was taking a stand against uh, many of uh, uh, doctrines that were detrimental and were not biblical concerning the person of Christ. And somebody said to him, uh, somebody said to him at one point, uh, "Athanasius, don't you know that the whole world is against you?" And he says, "The whole world against uh, against Athanasius." Is the whole world against Athanasius? Then Athanasius is against the whole world. You see, again, it's this is stand for Christ. Now, again, we don't, we're, not, we're not calling for foolhardiness here, but we are calling for a commitment, to the, the very commitment that Jesus Christ is laying before us here. And so, again, this hearing the word. Well, this brings us to the next point, this whole matter of overcoming. How do we overcome? Oh, this world, how do we overcome? How do we overcome the allurements and the comforts of this world? How do we overcome the hostilities of this world? How do we overcome the world that presents itself to us in so many ways? And will we even say to us, listen, just be yourself. You don't need a message of repentance. You don't need the change. Just be yourself. And that's one of the elements has made this corrupting teaching that is that is being filtered into the church. Actually, in some places, it's not filtered. It's it, it, it's, <coughs> pumped, it's it's pumped in with a with a four-inch hose. It's just it's just it's just flying in. This idea, and this is one, if I can say, and I'm jumping here a little bit, but if I can say this, this is one of the things that I think in so many of our churches today, I've spoken about this in weeks past, that that identify themselves with the whole you know, rainbow identity, the whole homosexual push. It's not so much to to encourage homosexuality within a church, although it's definitely there, but it's this idea that you can be yourself whoever you are. We accept you just as you are. Whoever you are, remember that love wins. Whoever you are, remember that, that, uh, that love is love. <clears throat> and what you have in churches is this kind of open door to a very policy, that, to a policy that Jesus Christ is specifically calling for repentance for. And so again, these things come in. But our Lord Jesus Christ says, what does he say? He says, oh, to him that overcomes. To him that overcomes this type of, uh, of teaching. So what is it to overcome? Well, again, as I said before, the call to overcome is given to every church. Verse 7, verse 11 of chapter 2, verse 12, uh, 17 of chapter 2, verse 29 of chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 6 of chapter 3, verse 13 of chapter, th- uh, 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 chapter 3, verse 22 of chapter 3. Every church has this call to, to, to overcome. And so how is it that we overcome What's well, interesting, just by way of initial observation, what we see here is that when our Lord Jesus Christ says, him that has an ear to hear, he's using it in the sense of, a, of, a, of like I don't want to say a one-time thing, but he's using it in the sense that it's marking something clear and definitive. You have heard the word of Christ. To him that has an ear to hear, okay, you've heard. But the word for overcome is, is in the present tense. So it's something like this, to him who is overcoming. To him that has an ear, let him hear, but to him that is overcoming. And it reminds, us that, it reminds us that the Christian life is a constant battle and struggle against sin, whether by way of internally the struggle with sin or by way of what society might be trying to conform me into. It is a continual battle that the Christian undergoes. And so what we are called to here, again, is a continuing battle against those things that would, uh, that would cause us to depart from Christ. So as overcomers, you and I are called to continually overcome. The word itself is easy enough to, to understand. It means to, some of our translations say, to him that conquers. It means to be victorious in a fight. Again, reminding us that the, that the Christian life is a battle. And there's a sense in which we can say this. When you came to faith in Christ, when you won that great victory over the world of flesh and the devil, uh, you were issued a certain uh, uniform. You were issued, again, if I can say it this way, clothed for battle, And you say, well, where, where, what clothes did I get? Well, read Ephesians chapter six. There's what you see, you're closed for battle. You're called to a continual struggle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. And so again, how do we understand then this call to be overcomers, particularly in light of the fact that we know that scripture says that we are overcomers. In other words, when I came to faith in Christ, I'm classified as an overcomer. So why now this call to overcome? Well, let me say this. Because as I said before, what Christ makes you by way of his grace, he enables you to be by way of his grace. Amen. Grace is a transforming power that changes the heart of the sinner into the heart of a, uh, of a true, genuine Christian. Those of you who received the daily email, I think it was on maybe Wednesday or Thursday, uh, we had that quote from, uh, from A.W. Tozer. Remember what he said? He talked about this idea, how that God takes rebels and makes them worshipers. That's what grace does. Grace doesn't, just, grace doesn't just give you a ticket to heaven. Grace transforms. And so because of that transforming power and by virtue of that transforming power, you and I are called to live as overcomers in this world. Well, I need to get back to Christ here, don't I? I need to remind you again and again that Christ is the very cause and the very reason by which you and I overcome. I think of that passage of Scripture in 1 John chapter four, verse four: uh, "Greater is He than uh, I, uh, beloved. You have overcome the world because greater is He that is in you than He than He that is in the world." It's by virtue of your union with Christ. It's by virtue of the indwelling Christ. And I ask the question again: Is Christ dwelling in your heart by faith? You see, I can't press overcoming sufficiently unless I press the reality of the new birth. And so again, here is, this, here is, our, here is, our, here is our overcoming by virtue of our identity, identity with Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter four verse uh, I'm sorry, in Second Corinthians chapter two, verse 14, uh, the Apostle Paul writes this, "But thanks be to God, who in Christ, listen, always leads us in triumphal procession, or always leads us in victory, and through us spreads the fragrance, the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. In other words, in Christ we are being led on the victory. And therefore, brothers and sisters, take up the call of Christ to overcome. And so again, we, we battle in this world, we, we seek to overcome in this world, and we do it by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Jesus Christ is the great overcomer in the word of God. You know that, don't you? Again, I, that I was reminded in this past week, and to my shame, I kind of forgot all about it. And uh, somebody reminded me that, that uh, in this whole concept of overcoming, Jesus Christ was the great overcomer. And I said, oh, that's right, I forgot about that. And I was so happy to hear somebody bring that to my attention. And it's true. Jesus Christ says this. In the world you shall have tribulation but be of good, good cheer. I have overcome the world. Christ is the great overcomer. And all those who are united to Christ are overcomers and are called to overcome in their particular situation. Amen. Christ the great overcomer. Revelation chapter 3 verse 21. To him that overcomes I will grant to sit with me in my throne even as I also overcame. Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, And one of the elders said unto me, Weep not, behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book, Christ the great overcomer. Revelation chapter 17 verses 12 through 14, and the, the, which we have bought bread this morning, and the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as of yet, but, uh, but received power as kings in one hour with the beast. These all have one mind who shall give to their power and strength to the beast. Verse 14, these shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And they that are with them are called and chosen and faithful, brothers and sisters, overcome. So that you will be identified as those who are called, chosen and faithful. Amen. And so again, when we speak about this overcoming, then I would set before you three general principles concerning overcoming. Number one, as I said before, you and I overcome by virtue of our union with Christ. 1 John 4 verse 4, ye are of God, little children, and you have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is than he, than, he, than he that is in the world. And what's interesting in that passage of scripture in 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, John is saying again to, to test the spirits. These false teachers are coming in. And John is able to say, You have overcome them. How have you overcome? How have you overcome those who teach the doctrine of, of Balaam and those that teach the doctrine of Jezebel, and those that teach the doctrine of the Nicolaitans? You've overcome them by virtue, number one, of your union with Christ. When you came to faith in Christ, you won a great victory over this world, over the flesh, and over the devil. The other thing that we see, the second general principle I want you to understand is this. We overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil through faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, faith brings us into that victory, and faith carries us through that victory. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Oh, brothers and sisters, your, your identity with Christ, your faith in our Lord Jesus Christ is vital. You see, it's the very means by which you gain this victory. The third principle, the third general principle is this. We overcome the world through the exercise of faith and in and with the armor that God provides. Ephesians 6.11, you know the passage, take on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. And so what I want you to see that These three general principles are very important. Whatever overcoming we talk about, they are all based on these three general principles. But there are particulars as well that we have to observe. And those particulars are given to us in this passage of Scripture in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And the particulars here are as follows. Overcoming in the context of Pergamos meant holding fast the name of Christ in a context and in a culture that called for the individual to depart from the name of Christ. In other words, stop and think of this. The individuals of Pergamus confessed before a hostile culture that Jesus Christ is Lord. The very culture which required every citizen once a year to take a pinch of incense uh, to take a pinch of incense and burn it on an altar and say Caesar is Lord. But these ones did not deny his name, they overcame. So again, in the specifics, the particulars, we must stand against those particular inroads that the culture is trying to make to shake us from Christ. So they held fast to the name of Christ. The second particular was, they held on to the doctrines of Christ and didn't forsake them. Those doctrines that called for holiness and godliness of living. Those doctrines that called for uh, that type of living that would set us apart from the world at large. Those doctrines that call for self-inspection and, self, and self-examination and, and going continually before uh, the, the throne of our Lord Jesus Christ and, and, and seeking forgiveness for sins. Those very doctrines that are all intended to promote holiness and not laxity in life. And they didn't reject this. They held on to that. The third focus of battle, the third particular, was in their prohibition no. of allowing those false teachers... To stay in the church without calling them to repentance. They took a stand against teachers that would allow for this kind of acquiescence to the larger culture. Well, as I said before, here was, here was this church, and here were the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, calling them to be faithful in their day. Well, as I said before, as I was saying before, in our present day, nobody is calling us to burn a to burn a pinch of incense, incense to Caesar. But there are voices calling us to leave down our guard by way of what holiness is. There are those voices that are calling us to ignore the natural order that God has created, male and female. So it's, it's such a bizarre thing, but here we are. And these voices are in the church, as I said before. And so what does the church do? By way of an indistinguishing love and a kind of a general goodwill for all people. Say, yeah, come on in. We have a place for you We have a platform. You can teach these things. Church can't do that. Not the church of Jesus Christ. The church of something or another can do that, but not the church of Jesus Christ. And so again, it is not Caesar, Zeus, or Asclepius that the present-day Nicolaitans and Balaamites or the followers of Jezebel are seducing us with. It is much worse than that. It is the God of self, the enthronement of you, apart from the need of redemption from a holy God. For, there, for if there was a holy God, and this is, what, this, is the, this is the sense of what people teach, for if there was a holy God, he would certainly love you as much as you love yourself. Here we go. The crowds come in. The crowds come in. And our Lord Jesus Christ says that this must be repented of. And so, here we are. Here we are at the end of this letter. And where do we go from here? Well, we stay with the letter itself. And we realize what Christ is saying here. He's saying to those who, who hear and those who overcome, He has promised great blessings. Now again, these blessings at, every, at the end of every one of these letters the blessings that are given there to those who are overcome are all, are all in one sense, they're, 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 they're the commensurate blessing of the gospel. The features of, of, of salvation are all brought to bear in, these, in the emphasis here at the end of this letter. And so it's not as though something new is being given. What our Lord Jesus Christ is saying essentially this is that you will enjoy the fullness of salvation. And two things in particular, some would make a case for three, two things in particular, the hidden manna and the white stone. But what's the hidden manna? Well, as I said earlier, manna was that provision that God gave in the wilderness. Manna was that provision that God fed his people with. Manna was that provision that signified for us the Lord Jesus Christ. And whatever it was by way of a physical nourishment of the people of Israel in the Old Testament times, the manna that is Christ is a nourishment to our souls. And Jesus says here in this passage of Scripture, I will give to those who overcome, I will give to eat of the hidden manna. The world sees nothing of this. The world may keep from you by way of economic pressure and economic isolation and social isolation, everything else. They may keep certain things for you, but Christ promises a provision for you. Amen. The provision of the world or the provision of Christ. Which is more appealing to you in this morning? So again, there's much more we can say, but we'll leave it at that. Secondly, I want you to consider this stone. This stone is very interesting. This might even be a little more difficult to understand than even the hidden noun. But the stone, again, in one sense, it, it was used in a number of ways in the ancient world, this white stone. When there was a, when there was a trial uh, being uh, given or a verdict that needed to be rendered, a, a white stone would be for acquittal, a black stone would be for condemnation. That white stone is the stone of acquittal. Jesus Christ says to you, remember again, he comes to Pergamus with the sword uh, 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 signifying that he holds ultimate power. In Pergamus, they had the right, they had the, the authority from Rome to put individuals to death. Jesus Christ says, I'm the one who holds ultimate authority and I have given you my white stone of acquittal. I don't care what the culture gives you or how they brand you, you have my white stone. The other way in which this stone was used in the ancient world, it was giving something, it was something of a symbol for, for a victory won, maybe in an athletic game. And there was this white stone, this symbol that was given. And with that white stone, there were, there were certain privileges attached to it. You can go places with that white stone. I forget, um, I forget what the advertisement was of something. You know, you can go places. Well, you can go places with this white stone, you see. And what I want you to see and understand is that the world might ostracize you, the world might cordon you off, the world might not let you go here or there, but Christ has given you a white stone. Amen. And with that white stone, there is great access. So these two blessings that Christ gives are blessings of provision and a blessing of privilege. Yes, it's difficult to take a stand against the hostile world. Why do you think Jesus calls it overcoming? Over oh, those who do, you see. He's given these great, these great Precious, these exceedingly great and precious promises. These are all ours in Jesus Christ. So my brothers and sisters, my friends in Christ, how do we deal with these things? And how do we go on from here? Well, just lastly, I want to say this. I want to call you to a realization that the Christian life is a life of ongoing battle against the world, the flesh, and the devil. You ever see some of these old movies where... You got these these old gray heads on their deathbed, but they still got their sword by their side. Still ready for battle. That's every Christian, brothers and sisters. Amen. Every Christian is ready for battle. And every Christian hears the word of Christ to overcome. And every Christian embraces that call to overcome because he says this. In Christ I have overcome what can the world or the flesh or the devil do to me? I'm going to a fight and I'm winning in this fight. hate to say it. A lot of fun winning fights. And may God give us grace again to realize that in this fight Christ has given to us the victory. Our Father, and our God, you call us through Jesus Christ to be overcomers, to hear, to heed your word and to overcome the world. Give us grace, we pray, through our Lord Jesus Christ to do that very thing. In his name we pray. Amen.